Okay, I have got so much to talk about and so many slides, I need to keep moving through them. Because um, today's all about pictures, so I've got a lot of pictures up here, and so I'm going to move through at a reasonable pace. We began last week um, the second part of our series on Revelation called The Big Reveal, Living Hope in Troubled Time. The book of Revelation was a revelation, its, its full title is the Revelation of revelations of Jesus where uh, sorry of John but actually it's really a revelation of Jesus and that's what we've the big reveal is actually of who Jesus is John had this incredible dream you know, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit he wrote it down it was delivered to the churches and it was like it written as a circular letter that went around to churches who at that time were living in very troubled times and the context as we jump into this is really important, um, to, again, to remind ourselves that actually God's people, uh, the followers of Jesus, were at a very early stage, this is towards the, the end of the first century, the latter part of the first century, and um, the two great powers in the known world, the two sort of um, centres of power and influence, were both pursuing had had issues had major issues with this sort of jewish cult that had sprung up from this backwater in judea it was originally no threat but for the roman empire the world the biggest superpower the world had ever known the claim that jesus christ is lord was it was treason it was an insurrection because if jesus is lord guess who that guess who isn't lord caesar and so that was a claim of insurrection and so they were being pursued as a terrorist group almost, a, a group that was inciting insurrection. Not only that, it had sprung up from, um, from Judea, from Jerusalem, and the political power in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the claim that Jesus was the Messiah meant that, effectively, the Pharisees were wrong because they were still waiting for the Pharisees. So it was actually a direct claim against the political power and influence and the sort of the structures of the time of the pharisees and so there was this very unholy alliance between two very powerful groups bearing down on the early church and yet as they went out through the known land originally they were sort of i guess they expected it to snuff out but by this latter part of the first century the good news this good news of the gospel that jesus is lord and the kingdom of god has come was starting to take a bit of a foothold and so this revelation comes sort of as a warning, as a beginning for that church in that time, in a specific particular place in history and time. And that's so important. We remember it's a letter written to people. And so its context is best understood, not when we start from us and kind of go, what does that mean to us? We go, what does it mean to them? And as much as it's incredibly relevant and i think it's never been more relevant for us here in, as a christians and hoping to follow jesus in the west for us to understand what does it mean for us now because it feels like it's troubled times we'll only get the the truth and the depth and the significance of that as we understand what it meant to that early church and as much as we might feel, rightly, fairly, that the trajectory of history, the trajectory of the world, um, is moving away from foundations of 
following Jesus, that there's less and less place in the public sphere, that there's sort of contempt and mockery for those who would say that they're followers of Jesus. We even would be tempted at times because we feel like that is such an unpopular opinion to carry the values of Jesus and to say you're following. It's such an unpopular and there's hostility even towards that. At the end of the first century, to what those that this letter was written to were facing uh, being imprisoned, being killed and being tortured in cruel and unusual ways. So we're all, it's this historical reality. We're all familiar with the idea of the Christians being thrown to the lions. That's like a historical fact. Everyone acknowledges that. Turns out, if you'd have started, that's probably one of the more humane ways on which Christians were being uh, killed. They were tied to horses, pointing in opposite directions and whipping both horses. Holes drilled in skull with molten lead poured in this. So when we use the P word, persecuted, in the context of day, let's put it in perspective. And yet, and here's the point, here's the point of why we would want to lean into this hope in troubled times. And uh, Yoli led so well into the, the theme that we've been looking at, at here. Something happened. God did something in this letter in the reading and understanding what was revealed, such that this church that was small, very fragile, and being pursued by the religious and sort of political superpowers of the time, they not only endured, they not only survived, they flourished. Something happened. Something is here in this book that gave them the ability to, to overcome, but also a way to, which, to walk forward. And this is, what, this is what we're looking for here, because actually what Josh shared last week, if you haven't heard that sermon, you can go back. I'm, um, I'm not going to cover all of that. But in Revelation 5, the chapter 5, is a very significant point. We talk about that, that Jesus is revealed. People often come to Revelation and what they want revealed is like a timeline of events and a who's who of who the Antichrist is and who's Gog and Magog and these things to kind of nut out the end of the age. That's not what it's for. If you do that, you might come up with some answers. They might be close, but you're missing what it's for. And you're missing its power in, in, in your life and our life for now. It's more about revealing who Jesus is and who we are to him in a way that helps you not just endure, not just overcome, but flourish in life. And in Revelation 5, there is a picture of Jesus that is revealed, an image of Jesus that is real, that's, that's absolutely central, the way in which we understand. And as Josh um, uh, spoke to this last week, it hit me afresh. The image that John uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaks so clearly as it did to them, but to us now. And so we're going to go into a little bit deeper than that. Uh, we're going to go into that a little bit more deeply. But firstly, who has built a fence before? Hands up if you've built a fence. A couple of people. Micah, I have no idea why you've got your hand up. Uh, I've built two fences in my life. Um, this isn't one of them. <laughs> when I say I've built two fences, 
I've been present while my dad has built fences and I've attempted to help with varying degrees of success. Um, this fence is actually very similar to the fence uh, that I, the, the last fence that I built um, just before uh, when Christy was pregnant with that bundle of joy at the back there. Um, we decided it was a good time to buy and renovate a house um, in Geelong. And when I say when Christy was pregnant, she was eight months pregnant. And he was 12 pound three when he was born, so she was heavily pregnant. Like that is the right term. Um, and we found this house and it was, um, it was a bomb. I mean, it was, and so we had a month to renovate it. The first day when we got the keys, we moved in, we had a whole lot of people from the church come and rip out carpets and rip out things. And the neighbours actually turned up from next door and said, oh, who'd lived next to this house that looked terrible. Absolutely worst house in the street by country mile. And the neighbours turned up and saw us ripping, the, and they said, oh, great, you're going to tear it down and rebuild we said, no, we're going to renovate it. And they went, oh, okay. So anyway, in the, in, the, in the process, one of the things, Christy had a very, very clear sense of what was right and wrong. I thought taste was subjective. Apparently not. There is definitely the way things should look and the way things they shouldn't look. Um, and one of the things Christy wanted was a fence like this. Now, um, if you know, there's a lot of vertical lines there and it looks great when they're all straight. Uh, and I brought my, my dad down to come and help me build this fence. I actually brought him down to build it for me. Uh, and anyway, so there was a lot of battens. We'd framed it all up. We were doing the battens. And dad said, look, okay, you're going to do that section over here. He said, now it's really important. Every three, you need to get the spirit level and make sure it's straight. Because every three, every three, he knew me pretty well, every three. Every three. Three's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of, and particularly when you just line it up next to the one next to you, you know it's going to be straight, right? You know how this story ends, don't you? If you just go, that one was straight because you lined it up with that one, then this one, then you say, what do you need to go and get the spirit level? That's a lot of work. So every three turned into every five, turned into every ten. Um, so I don't have a picture of this little, uh, the, the five hours of, or no, it's a bit less than that, three hours of work of where I went with my sort of theory. But it kind of went like this. So if you put that one after about 10, that's what it looked like. Three hours work of that, and I'm pretty much by the end putting horizontal ones in. <laughs> and Dad came around the corner and saw it and... Uh, suggested that I would remove all of that and start again and this time use the spirit level every three times. Um, this, in the ancient world, and probably, I don't know when spirit levels, Jamie, when were spirit levels made? If Jamie was there, this would never happen. Jamie's coming. Does anyone know when, when spirit levels were, actually became a thing? You know, with the little bubble in them? Because that's what you use against it. But in the ancient world, you use what's called a plumb line. Now, I don't know if that's ancient, ancient or quite... Does anyone use the plumb line? Is they, do they still use those? They still use those. In the modern world, they use this plumb line. So it's a weight on the end and basically gravity produces a straight line. Thank you, 1660. 16, then what are we mucking around with these things for then? <laughs> the, build, the building game. 
But that's called a plumb line, right? And it's, you know, it provides a straight, uh, a straight line. And it's very similar. We've talked about this before, about the idea of the cornerstone. So if you're making a building, again, like agriculture, I'm so well qualified to talk about this stuff. Um, if you're building a, a wall or a house, and it, particularly if it's out of stone, um, then it was really critical that the cornerstone would be one with uh, right angle edges because you can imagine that if you've got a stone there that's not true and with true right angle and you lined up the corner, the, the, instead of going at right angles, you'd have a wall that would head off in the wrong direction and you'd never be able to actually build a square, a proper... So the cornerstone, like the plumb line from the ancient world, was this, like everyone knew how important that was the idea of the cornerstone and the plumb line. And it is an image for Jesus that is used all through Scripture and sort of quite famously in Isaiah, this gets referenced a lot. People sort of, that, that whole thing that Josh would talk about when prophets pay their dues, they hark back. People would pay their dues to Isaiah about this idea of the plumb line and the cornerstone. And in the New Testament, it's in Ephesians and it's in Peter. But a lot of it comes from this Isaiah here who's, sort of talking messianically he's talking about the one to come he said so this is what the sovereign lord says see i lay a stone in zion which is in israel a tested stone a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation everyone gets oh we know what you're talking about that that stone there at the corner that you know if you're going to have a good house you've got to have a good cornerstone uh the one uh, the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. He's talking about, again, the Messiah will be the one who will embody what is right and true and worthy to build your house, the house of your life upon. A little bit later, Amos, the prophet Amos, does this thing where he calls back to Isaiah. And, he's, and again, he's prophesying. The Lord says that I'm going to lay a plumb line in the middle of Israel. It's talking about Jesus. There's going to be this one who will come and represent life and living and the kingdom that is the role of the messiah and it uses this image of the plumb line just like um just like my fence we all get if you're following here that that's that wouldn't be a very controversial thought or a difficult thought the idea that we should sort of measure our lives against jesus if we're going to be followers of jesus then actually going to scripture and understanding and saying that's that's the measure. Now, what happens is that over time, the culture of our life or the culture of the world, our brokenness, our humanity, our sinfulness, our, our, our ill-gotten, our, our ill-placed desires mean that life is lived that way. We, we go away from that. I wonder if you can recognise this dynamic where when rather than coming back and realizing at the end of that curve how far we are from Jesus. We can't touch that. Instead, what's helpful is we create a version of Jesus that's maybe not that far away. So in cultures where they become affluent and comfortable, the idea of true Jesus that calls for sacrificial living and generosity, yeah, that's, that's a bit uncomfortable. What if we turn the volume down? What if we sort of just make that colour in our image of Jesus a little bit more powerful? And he talks a lot about abundant life and prosperity. And what if we turn that up? Ah, oh, we can reach that. 
in cultures or then this can happen wholesale it can also the powers when we recognize it happens for us by the way rather than in others but in cultures where there's perhaps animosity and a lack of division and the sense of othering there's us and there's them well the stuff where jesus the good samaritan him reaching out to the woman caught in adultery the having uh lunch with zikis that's uncomfortable he does seem to be Jesus does seem to be up on doing the right thing. So if we're right and they're wrong, what if we turn that up? Can you see what I'm saying here? How we can actually create a version of Jesus by sourcing stuff in Scripture that actually is just a little bit more comfortable for us and we create, we return, you know, God created man in his, in his own image and then we return the favour. If we can recognize that happens, then we're, in a, then we're in a place where we can come back to Scripture and say, I'm looking for the true Jesus. I recognize that, that maybe there's something in me that will cause me to trend away and stay comfortable. And this was the thing for the, um, in Revelation that, again, I was fascinated by the image of how Jesus is represented over and above some other ways in which Jesus that w- w- uh, was represented and even referred to. So we're going to jump into that today. Um, let's, let's read. Let's do some reading here. Um, yeah, let's read it. Revelation 5. Then I saw, so this is a, a really key point. He's already had part of the revelation where it's, it's a scene that's happening in heaven. It's a dream. It's weird. Uh, there's lots of imagery here going on. And we've got to do some work to get to the truth here. We've actually got to do a little bit of hard work of understanding the imagery to really have Jesus revealed in its power. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Remember that. There's a scroll. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's an image of Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Jesus. And the elder who's there says, Look, it's okay, because the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Now these are powerful images, biblical images of who Jesus is. He's the Lion of Judah. The root of David refers to the fact that he's royal. He's kingly. He said he has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and it's seven seas, seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. What's with all the sevens? We'll come back to it. Um, sent out into all the earth. He went, and took, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Him who sat on the throne, that's the picture of God. In this image, he's kind of, the, the lamb is there in the throne, but he takes the scroll from God. 
Um, a little bit further on, verse 11, Then I looked and heard the, the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times, ten, lots and lots of people. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was, uh, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory, honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and on the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worship. There is a lifetime in studying that chapter. And we're not going to spend a lifetime here today. Um, there's a lifetime in it because there's people who have spent lifetimes who are much smarter than you and I, much more godly, and still they don't agree on what it says. That needs to be a starting point. Good people who love Jesus who are, have beautiful, redeemed minds, who have devoted themselves to a life of uncovering truth in Scripture, don't agree. So it's okay, you and I, if we don't exactly agree. However, we can move the specifics aside. If you can be humble enough that maybe your version of exactly what it means might not be true, I can be humble enough about that. We can both go and know we're right, really. But we can find something even more powerful, which is what everyone agrees that it is saying about who this Jesus is. So there's this scene and this scroll is really important. And this is where we've got to do some work. Here's the image. Someone had the thought to whip out a camera, which was great. Here's the image. It's wild. It's cosmic. It's grand. This is not a small thing that's happening. This is a big thing. In fact, this is the thing. This is the end of the age. And there's this scroll, uh, I'll come back to that. There's this scroll, whoa, there's this scroll. Now the scroll, um, Josh taught last week, it's clearly very important because it says it's written on both sides. That's all you need to know. There's, um, and also seven seals, seven is this number, it comes up again and again and again. Seven in scripture means like it's, it's, it's perfect, it's, it's better, than, it's not so much perfect, it's fulfilled, it's the ultimate and so whenever seven refers to something, seven such and such, it's saying it, it couldn't be more, it couldn't be possibly more. So the idea of a seal is about the authority. Who, who can open this? Well, there's seven of them. So only someone who is really, really, like couldn't be more worthy. And that is the grief in heaven when John weeps. It's like, this is really, really important. But yet, it's got seven seals. So who is possibly going to be worthy? Now, what this represents, some people say the seven seals, the first readers, the first hearers, would have gone, oh, that's a will. That's an inheritance. Because apparently, some people say that was the only document in the ancient world that would have had seven seals or close to it. Some people say, no, it would be a title deed um, of a piece of property. And the fact that it was written on both sides, apparently, some people say that in the time, if you owned a piece of property and you came upon hard times and you had to forfeit it because you were in debt and you owed, then how much you owed, what the debt was, what, the reason why you had to forfeit ownership was written on the backside of the title deed. And then it was rolled up and sealed. And when you were able to come and pay what you owed, you getting where this is going? Then the seal could be broken and it would be returned to you. Some people say 
That's what it was. And people would heard. Other people say, no, there's no way. So here we go. If you can figure that out. The point is, everyone agrees, it's a really important document. And actually what it symbolises, because what happens next, when it gets opened in the next few chapters, what's happening here is it's the plan in which God is going to set things right. Because the book of Revelation is, is, um, is God setting things right to the first hearers. And we can identify they're living in the middle of the world. We, we've, we've given our all to following Jesus. And this is not turning out how we thought. We, we've gone all in on this promise of Jesus and the new kingdom and in coming back. It's not turning out that way. What's going on here? Ever felt like that? I've felt like that. And this is God saying, I am going to set things right. This symbolizes I'm in the process of setting things right. The next few chapters talk about a whole lot more sevens and there's plagues and there's all this other, a whole lot of, you thought there's a lot of imagery here. Hold on to your hats. What you need to know is what's happening there. Is it God being angry and burning up the world? Some people think so. Is it God being loving and releasing? What it is, is God saying, I'm putting things right. The plumb line of justice and righteousness is coming back. And this is the plan. But the great question. So this is why John's weeping. It's like, this is really important. I recognize this. This is the way things become right in the world. But, but who? How does it get set right? Not just who, but how. Because kind of who is a no-brainer. It's Jesus, right? We, we see that. But, but this is where the image becomes critical. Because the elder says, well, that's the line of Judah. Powerful imagery. Surely the line of Judah. Or surely the king of kings, lord of lords, descendant of David. And John said, well, that makes sense. But he looks and he turns and he sees this. This is the image that God wants to sear in your heart and to have seared in the memory and the mind of those first Christians who are being persecuted. It's of a lamb. Now, does that seem, it, does that seem reassuring at first glance? Does that not seem somewhat concerning that and with all of this going on, we're going to get a lamb? Not only that, it says he's a slain lamb. So it's a lamb that's already been offered up as a sacrifice. Now, we get some more sevens here. So there's seven horns. The horn is a symbol of power in the ancient world. And then it's seven eyes, which represents seven spirits. Or It's like all-powerful, all-seeing. It's like the ultimate sacrificial lamb. It's God's sacrifice. That's what the imagery is saying there. When Josh spoke to this and took us into last week, it just, and all week, this thought of all of the images in that moment to inspire confidence, the lamb. Remember the two outcomes here that God is doing in his people and in us the two outcomes are to give a sense of confidence to not just endure but to overcome in the midst of trial but also how do we walk forward from this point because you could imagine that persecuted church as they are having friends and relatives literally ripped apart by horses executed put in jail you could become pretty bitter 
out of that. You could kind of, that would be great fuel for persecution complex to fuel a sort of a, like a, an, insur- um, an insurgent group that just kind of stayed together and formed themselves around needing to get back at the world. Who did the early church become? What did they become famous for? Well, not long after, there was a great plague in Rome and everybody left the city except the Christians stayed. It's recorded, not in Christian history, in, in the sort of the, the broader history of the time, the Christians stayed at their own expense. Through history as they walk forward, these were the ones that gave not only to their own people, but to people outside of their community, outside of their faith. As people walked forward, fueled by the way in which the, the, the sort of pivotal moment, schools, hospitals, generosity, something happened here in that group, that f- in, that, in this letter for those Christians, that fueled the way in which they walked, the image of Jesus here, the plumb line. Of a, of a sacrificial lamb. It's everything. And this is when I thought, this is not the first time I've come across in Scripture a ma- major moment in history, in world history, where Jesus turns up and the image is quite surprising. In fact, I want to say to you, every time it matters. As much as there, and we'll get to the, some other images of Jesus, but every time there is a... There is like a pivotal point in human history that Jesus turns up. You would be very surprised. You would have every right to be very surprised at what the image of Jesus is. And it's confronting. It's confronted me afresh this week. Here's what you would expect to see and what we do see when there's the announcing of a royal birth. Some smelly shepherds in a shed at the back of a pub. That's the image. This is what it looks like when a conquering king returns to the city to announce his great triumphal arrival. This is how Jesus turns up. A ridiculous donkey that he almost can't fit on. This is the image of what Jesus said to his disciples that they must do. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to get down and wash people's smelly, disgusting feet. And Peter, who struggled with that because he recognized the one, he recognized who Jesus was. There's this level of revelation. Dave, this is you. And Peter turns to, uh, Jesus turns to him and said, you have no part of me unless you can do this. This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. That's not the image that naturally comes to mind of greatness in a kingdom. And then what of a a coronation, the moment in which the full power and recognition and authority of a kingdom should be recognized and, and lauded upon an individual, time for pomp and ceremony. This is the coronation of Jesus. Sacrifice on a cross. Every single time, the image is confronting because of how completely different it is 
for the way in which the, per, the, way, the way in which the world understands power and authority. And we are, I feel, we are at a time again when God is re- wanting to return that image to us. Because what's happening in the world is concerning. What's happening in our world makes us feel unstable. And so we look to reach for things that would give us a sense of security and power and influence because we sure as heck know that in most areas of society, no one's really, the voice or the concerns of Jesus are being disregarded. So the images that we want to reach for, I want the Lion of Judah. The authority of the King of David. I want that. I want to grab that. That'll make me feel better. Jesus says, there's a way to living life. There's a plumb line, a cornerstone of your life that's actually straight from the pit of hell. It's actually the work of the adversary because it will rob, kill and destroy you. There's a way to use whatever influence or power that's in your disposal that will rob, kill and destroy and diminish your humanity and the humanity of others. He says, but I've come to give you life and life abundantly. I'm the plumb line. And every time Jesus is there in Scripture, whether it's literally him or whether there's a, a, an image of him, that it's like, this is it. Here's Jesus revealed. He is revealed as sacrificial, humble, Suffering, putting others before himself. That's him. And here it is again in Revelation. Who is worthy? Remember this again. Who is worthy to lead forward? What is the way in which we walk into the future in a way that aligns with with what God's plans are for the end of time? It's not the line of Judah. It's not the king, it's the slain lamb. That's who's worthy to walk forward. So it's in this, we get incredible. I mean, here you can see those two things. How do we deal with the fact that things are difficult now? You have a God who in Jesus loved you so much that he would sacrifice all for you. Do you not think? He doesn't know your financial troubles right now. He doesn't understand whatever it is that makes you feel insecure or insignificant. He's the lamb. So it secures our sense of identity and who we are now, but also says, so how do we go towards living? How do we move towards a life of flourishing? Well, first of all, it's not the way you think. To be great, you need to put aside Pride, selfishness, trying to make yourself big by making others small, trying to divide rather than unite. Put that aside. It seems like it'll have an effect, and it might for a short time, but it will rob, kill, and destroy you of your humanity. It's a challenging... I I can't tell you how challenged I've been by that this week. There are other images, by the way. These images of, of Jesus that are a bit more like we'd reach for. There's, we all love this one. 
because Jesus gets his cranky on, grabs a whip. And so this image, we, we like the, well, I like this image. There's Jesus ascended on the grave. This is a better image. This is a true image. This is there. This is here for us. And then we're about to go forward. There's, there, there's images coming up in, in, um, in Scripture. I'll get the, the band to come up. Where Jesus comes at the end of the age and he's on a white horse. And, and it looks like he's about to kick some butt. It seems like that way. Now, we've got to be really, these images are there, but we need to be really careful with this. We need to put them in context because we like to reach for these. First of all, this one here was when, why was Jesus upset? Well, this was in the temple of Gentiles when seekers and people outside the kingdom were coming. And actually all of these other believers were getting in the way of people seeking God. It was on behalf, it was a righteous anger on behalf of those who are marginalized, those who are on the outside. These are the two images. We need to be careful because these are the, f- the first resurrection is like the foretelling of the eventual resurrection, which are the other side of eternity. So yes, they're true, but they're not the way in which we should walk now. It, it's not the image. Or it's, it's not the image. There's a confidence that comes, and I'm thankful. I am so thankful, and, and my faith grows that, that he knows the way to the other side. Incredible confidence that come from that, but that's not the same as the way he's expecting me to walk now. How do I walk forward now? It's the lamb. It's the suffering servant. It's the the sacrificial. Uh, it's the it's the, you know, being prepared to give my life for others. I couldn't help but think, even in the even in this imagery, there's maybe a little bit of hopeful recreation. Could we be doing it again where we're trying to reach for something that's maybe not there? Come back to Isaiah. I'm going to finish with this. The purpose of the cornerstone, the plumb line. It says, if we have this true image that leads to life, if we use the available influence and power and resources at our disposal. And we are, if you're sitting here this morning, you are in the good, I've got good news for you. You're in the top 3% of wealth in the world. So you have power and influence. You are rich. I don't know which percent you're looking at. The two that might be above you or the 97 who are not. So we have power and influence. In the kingdom of God, you use this for the sake of others. That's the way of Jesus. Can we just go back to that one? Sorry, Michael, I'll just uh, go back to that. I was going to read that out, mate. You're nailing it. Maybe it's not there. Anyway, uh, that's fine. Leave it there. It talks about the cornerstone. It talks about, there it is, stricken with panic. I feel like I've had more moments in the last few years to be stricken with panic than I've had in my life. There's things going on in my world, but the world where things seem insecure, there is a way here which Jesus says you can walk, that deals with the panic of being insecure. It's reminding yourself and seeing who you are in light of the Lamb who's given all for you. And then we're called to go out and use that as the measuring, as, the, as our own plumb line for living. We're going to finish by taking communion together. And as we go through this, I, I recognise how important and why the early church did this 
on a daily occurrence. It was to remind themselves. Who was this Jesus? It's to make sure the image of Jesus in their mind was the true reflection that says so much to your situation now, but also to the future in which you walk forward. So we're going we're gonna to receive that now. You can take that in your own time. We're just going to uh, just take a few moments as we worship, and then I'll come back and I'll pray as we close off.